Good morning, beloved. If you would grab your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, we'll be reading the first 10 verses this morning. Hebrews 5, the word of God reads, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. His inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We ask that you would sanctify us in truth. <clears throat> Teach us through the power of your spirit all that you would desire for us to learn and to apply this morning. Help us to be doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. Let me begin by thanking many of you who have been praying for my wife and I this week as we've been under the weather. So if there's some little hacking and coffee going on, understand that's the residual of what's remaining. Uh, but by God's grace, uh, we are here with you this morning, and it's a joy to be with you. So let me begin by asking you <clears throat> a very important question. On what basis do you hope to stand before the throne of God? Imagine God asking you, why should I allow you to enter my holy heaven? What are you prepared to answer? I mean, the, the real question here is, what does salvation require? Or what is necessary for someone to enjoy eternal fellowship with God? And here's where it really cuts to the chase. When it comes to this question, our opinions do not matter. Not one bit do our opinions matter when it comes to questions like these. We must know what God says. And God's word says to have fellowship with God, one must possess perfect righteousness. Now sit and think about that for a moment. One must be perfect 
Perfect in holiness, living in complete obedience to God's law. No blemish. No form of guilt or corruption. No transgression of any of God's law. I mean, think of the rich young ruler as he approached Jesus. And he asked him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Do you remember Jesus' reply? He says, if you would enter life, keep the commands. On a different occasion, there was an expert of the law, and he asked Jesus the same question. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded with a question of his own and said, what is written in the law? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. So what is the basis for salvation? Righteousness. Righteousness. And to be righteous before God is to be perfect. It is to keep his law perfectly. It's to act perfectly, to think perfectly, to speak perfectly. You know, in the commandments of God and repeated in the New Testament, we read, you shall be holy for I am holy. And in Matthew 22, Jesus tells the parable of a wedding banquet. He tells of a man who tried to infiltrate into the king's feast and was discovered and removed. And we read in verses 11 through, 30, or excuse me, 11 through 13 of Matthew 22, we read this. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God requires us to be clothed in perfect righteousness. Obviously, we have a problem. Our problem is not that we're merely morally flawed, but that we are morally corrupt through and through. Our garments are not slightly stained. They're not just slightly less than pearly white. They are dreadfully soiled. God's word is clear. None is righteous. No, not one. Man is unrighteous. And yet righteousness is required for salvation. We have no righteousness of our own. What secures forgiveness and life eternal for sinners like us is Christ's perfect righteousness that is received by faith alone. It is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by God's decree through faith alone. 
It's not our faith that makes us righteous. Rather, faith lays hold of the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became perfect as our Savior and High Priest, the source of eternal salvation, which is the title of this sermon this morning, the source of eternal salvation. And so we read these opening 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 5. In the beginning of that chapter, the author uses the first four verses to record the characteristics of the Levitical priesthood. And then he used the remaining six verses to record the characteristics characteristics of Christ's superior priesthood. And as we always do each Sunday, to ensure proper understanding of the passage at hand, we must look at it within its proper context. Just as a means of a reminder to you, this letter was written to Jewish believers who are facing heavy opposition, challenges, difficulties for their faith in Christ. And because of that opposition, there was a temptation to leave Christ, the claims, the beauty, the treasure of Christ, and turn back to the old covenant of Judaism. Thus, the author spends the majority of this letter pointing to Christ as the superior high priest. If you remember back in chapter 4, our last time together, in verses 14 through 16, it's where he began this new section of this letter that runs all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. Now, I would guess that many of you here this morning are not tempted to turn away from Christ and to Judaism. I don't get up here this morning to preach this sermon thinking that is what's going on in your hearts and your minds. But I do However, know that as Christians, we face difficulty every single day. Difficulty in denying ourselves, difficulty in picking up our crosses, difficulty in following Jesus. The word of God that is recorded here for us in Hebrews encourages us to press on in the faith, to cling to Christ as our righteousness just as it did 2,000 years ago to the original recipients. Again, the author began this encouragement back in chapter 4. So if you look back, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, let's read it again. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, what an encouragement. If you mark up your Bible, please have that marked up. Circle it, highlight it, put stars next to it that would encourage your soul that you have a high priest who you could run to in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your temptation, or in your failings, that you can run to him, that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. 
and that he's ready to help in time of need. Oh, how we must know the heart of our Savior. That we would be quick to run to him and not flee from him. But that he stands at the ready to help in time of need. And so now the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, he speaks of the greatness of Jesus' priesthood by contrasting it to the Levitical priesthood. I know some of you like the homiletical outline and like taking notes. So there's two main points today. And I'm going to categorize them as A and B and not one and two, which means there are some other numbers coming. So A, we're going to see the characteristics of the Levitical. Ooh, let's say it again. Levitical. Can someone say it for me? The characteristics of the Levitical priesthood. We'll see that in verses one through four. And then B, we'll see the characteristics of Christ's superior priesthood in verses 5 through 10. So those of you thinking on two points, we'll get out of here shortly. There are three subpoints for each of those. And so we will address those as we get there. Let's start first with the characteristics of the Levitical priesthood. Firstly, we'll see that he is appointed by God. He is appointed by God. We'll see this in verse 1 and verse 4. So look into your Bibles once again this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 5 begins, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. It goes on and says more, but I want to point that out to you. Chosen from among men. And then verse 4, that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So when we talk about the Levitical priesthood, one of the things to understand is that to qualify for the high priesthood in Israel, one had to be first a male. And those who served the priestly ministry, they were those who were divinely appointed by God. The author of Hebrews has already referred to this back in chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of Christ being appointed by God. And now in verse 1 of chapter 5, he speaks of it again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. And again, as we just read in verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read Exodus 28 and 29, but for those of you that are note-takers... Read those, Exodus 28, 29, read Leviticus 8 and 9, as they record the institution of the Aaronic priesthood. But all of Israel's priests were to come only through divine appointment. And these high priests, these appointees were primarily Aaron and his descendants. And what we see in scripture, and it makes it very clear, is that no high priest was to be installed as a result of volunteering. Pick me. Wasn't happen. Or I'm the guy. Wasn't happen. Or as a result of some democratic election, like we really like that person, we should choose them. It didn't happen that way. To do so brings the judgment of God. And we learn about this in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 16, we learn of Korah and his 250 followers who were swallowed up by the earth because they elevated themselves to the priestly office by burning unauthorized incense. We also read in 1 Samuel chapter 13 
we see that Saul loses his reign because he impatiently assumed Samuel's priestly function. He was serving where he ought not to serve. And then in 2 Chronicles 26, we see Uzziah wrongly utilizing a priestly censer, and he is stricken with leprosy for the remainder of his days. It is only those whom God chose, only those were to serve in this office. God chooses who will act on behalf of men. This is the first thing that the author comes out of the gate here, pointing to the Levitical priesthood, says, God appoints him. Second thing we see here is that this priest, he represents people in matters related to God. That's what we see in the remainder of verse 1, that he represents people in matters relating to God. Looking back to verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so fundamental to the work of the high priest is that he must be able to act on behalf of men. He must be able to represent the community whom he is called to represent. The idea is for the high priest to be part of the community, despite being set apart for the work. But he needs to stand in the community, to be present with God. And thus the old covenant priest came from Aaron's family. Aaron could represent the Israelites because he was an Israelite. The high priest would be expected to stand between God and people as their representative before God. A key here is that whole idea of representation. Representation. The priest had to be human in order to represent other humans. And because it is humans who stand condemned before God for sin. So it has to be a human representative. The priest was a mediator. Not only representing the sinful people before God, but actually bringing them back into fellowship with God through his work on their behalf. And so the nature of his work is to represent other humans through the offerings of gifts and sacrifices. And the purpose of this work is all too clear in Scripture. It's to deal with the problem of sin. That's his work. He is appointed by God to represent sinners before God by means of atoning gifts and sacrifices. And particularly in view here in Hebrews is the annual sin offering on the Day of Atonement. And according to the Old Testament, the high priest shares in the general responsibilities performed by all the priests, including in worship or leading the worship and participating in various offerings. However, it was the high priest that he alone offers the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. More homework for you, Leviticus chapter 16. It'll give you all the details. I'll do a short summary for you, but Leviticus 16 will give you all the details of that. It was on this day of atonement when the high priest takes two goats and he takes a ram 
from among all the Israelites. And after casting lots for the goats, he slaughters one of the goats as a sin offering for the people. And the other goat is brought forth alive from the tent. The high priest then lays his hands on the head of that goat called what we call scapegoat. It's a scapegoat. Confessing all the sins of the people before the Lord and then sends that goat off into the desert. And by carrying out this part of God's instructions on the day of atonement, the high priest acts before God as a representative on behalf of the people, making atonement for their sins. So we see the high priest, he's appointed by God. He acts on behalf of men in relation to God, specifically in offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. But thirdly, looking at the Levitical priesthood, we see that he deals gently with the people. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. We read, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Remember, he was chosen from among the men. And this means in the, in the very least that there was a way for sinners to approach God via gifts and offerings. It also means that since the high priest dealt with sinners in a gentle manner, that God would do the same. Scripture is clear that Aaron and his descendants were beset with weakness. They were sinners themselves and needed to offer sacrifice for their own sins. And this was another important part of the Day of Atonement. The high priest had to offer a special sacrifice for himself and for his household before he could offer the goat sacrifices on behalf of the people. In this regard, the Old Testament reads this way. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11, we read, quote, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. Since he was beset with weakness, we read the redemptive value of this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, that it enables him to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. This word, deal gently, it's one word in the Greek, and it's used here only this time in the New Testament. And it means to be gentle in one's attitude towards someone. I want you to think about hearing and learning of other people's sins. What is your initial reaction? Is it how could they? Is it take a holier-than-thou position over them? And, or is it to sympathize with them in their weakness? That I, too, am a needy recipient of grace. Old Testament priest, because of his own weaknesses, can sympathize with those who he would minister on their behalf. He could sympathize with them as he ministered on their behalf. He knew his own weaknesses, 
and he sympathized with others' weaknesses. We obviously read about this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, speaking of Christ. We'll revisit that shortly as we turn our attention solely upon Christ. But in these opening verses, the author here wants us to see the Levitical priesthood. Here are the characteristics, the basic things. But he spends the remainder of this time pointing us to Jesus, saying there is a superior priesthood that is in Christ, to pay much attention, to pay close attention there. And so that's what we'll do for the remainder of our time together. Let's look at Christ together. So part B, characteristics of Christ's superior priesthood. First thing we see is his superior status. We see this in verse 5 and 6 and also in verse 10. So if you look at your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And then pick up at verse 10. We see that he is being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, repeated about Melchizedek. Remember that in the Old Testament, every high priest had to come from the line of Aaron. Jesus, however, is not from the line of Aaron. Uh oh! But not to worry. Not to fret. We learn here that Jesus actually came from another priestly line, a prior line, a better line, the line of Melchizedek. The author here applies Psalm 110. And he applies it to Jesus. He says, you are a high priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. We're not going to go too deep into Melchizedek this morning, although I'm sure many of you would like to dig deeper. The author of Hebrews actually does do that in chapter 7, so we will wait as we get to chapter 7 to go deeper into Melchizedek. But there are some things that we do need to know this morning. For now, it's important to know that Melchizedek is mentioned only two times in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, as well as Psalm 110, verse 18. Four, which is quoted here. That's it. In Genesis, you might recall, you might remember that he meets Abraham coming back from a military conquest and he blesses him. And Abraham gives him tithes. Genesis simply records him as he was a priest of God most high. That's how it refers to Melchizedek. He was a priest of God most high. There is no other information about his parents or his ethnic origin. He appears in Genesis 14 and then disappears until a thousand years later in the time of David when quoted in Psalm 110 as saying that the Messiah is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And there's nothing more of Melchizedek until we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. 
Right here. This is the next time we see his name appear. And so what's the point of all this? Melchizedek symbolizes in the Old Testament a priesthood different from the priesthood of Aaron, different from the tribe of Levi. In Hebrews 7, as Lord Wynn will get to at some point, we learn that Melchizedek has no apparent birth and no apparent death, and thus he was a priest forever. And like Jesus, he was both priest and king. Christ's priesthood was superior to Aaron's in that it combined a kingly rule with priestly intercession. Not only was Christ divinely chosen, but he was chosen for two offices, the royal office and the priestly office. And so here in Hebrews 5, verse 5, the writer quotes again from Psalm 2-7 and says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As we've studied that previously, this is an implicit statement that Jesus is eternal king. And then the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the first time that Jesus ever identified with the priesthood of Melchizedek. But Hebrews refers to it three times. Here in verse 5, in chapter 7, verse 17, and in chapter 7, verse 21. So much like Melchizedek, he was both king of Salem and priest of God, the God Most High. God has pointed Christ as a king priest forever. And there... His priesthood is far superior than Aaron's. And so it would be foolishness for anyone to turn from Jesus as their great high priest to anyone else. And the second thing we learn about the characteristics of the Christ's superior priesthood <coughs> excuse me, is his superior sympathy. His superior sympathy. Picking up in Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 7, reading through verse 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, since Aaron and his descendants were sinners, it should have been easier for them to be sympathetic to other sinful worshipers. But Jesus, Jesus was neither weak nor sinful. So how could such a high priest be even greater in his sympathy towards sinners? We looked at that last time as we studied through Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And the point is this, that Jesus' high priest, as high priest, it was not his exaltation that leads to sympathy. It was his humiliation that leads to sympathy. That although he was a son, he took on flesh. 
And when he took on flesh, he didn't stop being God. He added humanity, but did not take away any of the divine nature. And so we have to understand this, that in his humanity, he was not partially man and partially God. He was fully man and fully God. Well, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? It means that the son knew many things that ordinary humans did not and could not. He knew who he was and where he had come from and where he was going. He knew why he had come into the world. Which, do you know why he came, church? To save sinners. Wow. This verse speaks of that as well as he agonizes for those very purposes. We see in verse 7, it speaks of in the days of his flesh. That means from his birth to his death or from the womb to the tomb. Jesus had put everything he knew into practice as a man. He had to live out everything in his humanity. This means that the obedience that he has always known would now be tested in his humanity. Think about obedience. Those of you that are younger and you're to obey your parents, and you're like, I know if they tell me to clean my room, I'm supposed to. You can know that, but when they actually say, clean your room, now it's tested for you to go and obey and clean your room. Jesus lived with flesh. His obedience was tested. And so we read here in verses 7 and 8 that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, in his humanity, learned to obey within the context of suffering, in the context of agony, the context of affliction, in the context of opposition. Look, obedience wasn't something that was new. Obedience in the face of suffering was what was new. Verse 8 says, he learned obedience. This does not mean that he moved from being disobedient to being obedient. It means he moved from being untested to being tested and proven in the flesh. He moved from obeying without any suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. As one commentator put it, quote, it means that the gold of his natural purity was put in the crucible and melted down with white hot pain so that he could learn from experience what suffering is and prove what his purity would persevere, end quote. And so what are we to see here? It's this, this learning obedience. It did not come naturally to Jesus in his humanity. 
Don't ever dismiss the example of Jesus by saying, but he was God. Don't raise your hand, but has that ever crossed your mind before? Has it ever come off your lips before? Well, he doesn't get it. He was God, and I'm just a man, or for some of you, a woman. Don't ever let that come out of your lips. Look again at verse 7. You'll see it. This obedience is what Jesus prayed for. It's what he begged for. It's what he cried out for. It's what he wept for tears for. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. But if he was God, couldn't he have just said, be gone? Sure. But in the flesh, he came to fulfill all righteousness and obeyed the Father on our behalf. Now, as we look to verse 7 of what are we talking about here when, when Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, some say, well, maybe it's referring only to the battle in Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood and pleaded with God. But I think that's doubtful. It was just one occasion. Because it says, in the days of his flesh. Day is plural here. In the days of his flesh. It was not just one night or, or one day, but during all the days of his humanity. His battle for obedience was through his entire life in the flesh. It was a lifetime of warfare against sin. Beloved, are you in a battle against sin? You're not alone. You have a great high priest who sympathizes with you. It's a lifetime. We see it in, in Christ's example here, and it should remind us that obedience isn't a one-time thing. It is constant. And to obey Christ is to deny self. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself, to pick up your cross, means a life of dying to self. If you know anything about dying, it doesn't feel good. It means it's painful. When you say no to yourself, no to your selfish desires, and no to all the selfish gratification, it is painful. There is suffering. Obedience requires suffering. And the encouragement we get from this text this morning is that our Savior knows suffering. And suffering far greater than any of us will ever experience. His whole life was a life of suffering and temptation. And what did he do? Look again at the text. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Look, these weren't flippant prayers. He was agonizing in prayer. 
These were prayers of reverence. He knew who he was going to. He knew the Father. And he came to him sincerely for help. So I ask you, have you ever cried out to God with loud cries and tears? Oh God, heal my body. Oh God, heal my marriage. Oh God, bring my child to faith. Oh God, give me a better job. Have you cried out? Have you agonized in prayer? Have you wept as you've gone to the Lord, pleading with him? And yet, up to this point, at least this far, the answer has been no. Do you know what that's like? Because our Savior does. He knows exactly what that's like. The author of Hebrew is letting us know that Jesus understands this feeling. Do you remember the rest of Jesus' prayer? He said, if it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then what do you say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This cup was not to pass from Jesus. But God's will would be done. Jesus knows what it's like to obey and not have every prayer answered according to your own desires. He knows. He understands. He sympathizes. And think about it. Isn't that one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life? To pray. To even pray in agony to plead with God and to get the answer, no. And so the challenge, the challenge is to keep believing, to, to keep trusting, to keep submitting yourself to the will of God when you don't like what's happening to you, when you don't understand what's happening to you, when you're not getting the answer to prayer that you asked for. Church, what are you to do at these times? Cling to Jesus. Cling to your Savior who knows and understands and sympathizes. Though our flesh wants to avoid every form of suffering, what encouragement we get by knowing that God controls and ordains every form of suffering in our lives. Did you hear that? You might have put the earplugs in for that one. God controls and ordains every form of suffering that we are to endure. I appreciate the amen. Our flesh doesn't always want to do that. <laughs> but God controls it. And it's precisely through these sufferings that we grow in ways that God intends for us, that he strengthens us for what is in store in the future, that it's like building blocks to the next thing. Jesus had a lifetime of this up to the point where he said, 
take this cup from me. They weren't all that grave. There were other ones prior to that throughout his whole life. But they were used to strengthen him. Bruce Ware says this. He says, quote, there is no little obediences. Every opportunity given us by God, either to obey or to disobey, is an opportunity for that character formation and strengthening of faith can that can prepare us for the greater challenges of faith God has in mind for us in the future. We have no idea what greater opportunities of kingdom work or faith expression might await us in the future if we only we are obedient now in smaller ways, preparing us for these bigger challenges that God in his mercy may bring our way. May we learn from Jesus that every obedience matters. May we obey in the smaller things that we may be prepared for the larger. May we understand the role that faith testing plays in the preparation for what God may have designed for us in the future. May we be more and more like Jesus in his resolve to obey and obey and obey no matter the cost, end quote. So what are we to do? We're to look to Jesus. We're to look and see that in his flesh, he labored to obey. He agonized in suffering. He fought through all trials and he obeyed the father in everything. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us and calls us to himself. He beckons us to come to him to receive grace in time of need. And our Savior, our great high priest, deals gently with us when we come to him. Dane Ortland put it this way. He said, quote, The point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us, end quote. We're to run to Jesus. We're to cling to him. It was now nearly 350 years ago that John Owen commented and said that Jesus can, quote, no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wanderings than a nursing father should cast away a sucking child for its crying. Jesus is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people, even as a nurse or a nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant, end quote. So think about this, that the fact that Jesus has not yet cast us off for our ignorance and our waywardness, it proves his greatness in sympathizing towards us, of having sympathy towards us, of receiving us when we come to him. His heart is for us and he deals gently with us when we come to him. 
And so we've seen that he has a superior status, a superior sympathy. And now turning to our last point, he has a superior service. We're looking at verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 5. And we read it here. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here we have the main point of this passage. Christ's superior service. In that he himself became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ. He is the source of eternal salvation. Salvation from the guilt and condemnation and the power of sin, from the wrath of God, from the fear of death. He is the source or the cause of that salvation. And we read that it's eternal. He became the source of eternal salvation, which means it lasts forever. Forever. It starts in this life and lasts through death, lasts through judgment, and it goes on forever and ever. This is exactly what the book of Hebrews is all about. It is what the Bible is about. Salvation that lasts forever that's based on Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, being made perfect. Some people get a little confused here like, huh, what? You mean Jesus is not perfect? He had to become perfect? What does it mean? So let me give you what this word here means. This word perfect. It means bringing to completion. It means moving to a planned or desired end. In English, we translate this word as complete or mature. And so by making it all the way to the end through suffering, Jesus was made perfect perfect or made complete in the sense of being able to fulfill his role as our high priest. It means he finished the course. It means what he said on the cross, it is finished. He drank the full experience that was needed in order to come before the throne with a sacrifice with which our sins could be addressed. Jesus obeyed God's word, and in his suffering, culminating on the cross, he bore in his own body the penalty for our breaking of his word. He fulfilled the law on our behalf by keeping it himself, and he bore our penalty, the penalty we deserve for not keeping the law. It is Jesus who fulfills all righteousness to every end. He cried out to the Father, trusting in him and fulfilling the law once and for all. Once for all. It is his obedience that opened up a way for sinners to enter into eternal salvation Christ's obedience, as we hear, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You know, we started this morning by talking about what is necessary for salvation and understanding that righteousness is the source of salvation. Pastor Sean read it to us this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 
The last verse that he read, actually, no, he went through chapter 6, but in 521, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In who? Christ. We might become what? The righteousness of God. Jesus and Jesus alone is our source for righteousness. Why is there no other way? Because he alone is the righteous one who gave himself on our behalf. Calvin wrote this. He said, quote, he became the author of our salvation because he made us just in the sight of God when he remedied the disobedience of Adam by a contrary act of obedience. Not only was his death infinitely valuable and infinitely effective because of his infinite worth, but he goes on ministering the effect of that death for us in heaven forever and ever, and he never dies. What a great high priest. He is the source of eternal salvation. And we see because of him being in the line of Melchizedek, his eternity is in the order of Melchizedek. You know, the ironic priests, they could only offer temporary salvation. All the sacrifices and the rituals had to be repeated again and again and again. But Hebrews speaks of eternal redemption. In chapter 9, you flip over, there's just one verse, but chapter 9, verse 12, we read about Christ. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Securing. He's done it. Back just a couple pages, chapter 7, verse 27. 727 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The priest and the offering. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He said, quote, he said, the salvation won by this high priest is eternal because it is based upon the once for all, accomplished, never to be repeated, and permanently valid sacrifice of Christ, end quote. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. And we'll close with this part of this last verse. It's of utmost importance that we see who benefits from this eternal salvation. Looking back to Hebrews chapter 5, same verse, verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does that mean? It means that only those who obey Christ will inherit eternal salvation. What was that? Only those who obey Christ. I mean, don't, don't be deceived here. Make no mistake about it. Jesus will save only those who are obedient to him in faith. He cannot be Savior without also being Lord. 
Lord meaning master. So here's the most important question that I've asked all morning. Do you have eternal salvation? Do you have eternal salvation? Because Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And so the first act of obedience, when we say, what does that mean to obey him? Like, does that mean I'm walking in perfection? And does that mean somehow now, just as Christ walked, I am to walk exactly as he did? The answer is yes and no. Yes, we are to walk like Christ. Yes, we are to walk in holiness. But yes, the Bible says we are still sinners. And that we have an advocate with the Father. That we have Jesus who continues to mediate on our behalf. That we're to go to him and to confess our sins. And that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's this Jesus. So the first act of obedience is simply this, believing the promises of God. We've read it from the very beginning of Hebrews. This is exactly what Israel failed to do, to believe the promises of God. Jesus was asked this question in John chapter 6, verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And in John 6, 29, the very next verse, he says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Speaking of himself. That's the act of obedience. To believe in Christ to believe that he is Savior of the world, that he is Lord, that he is Master. But there's also a warning in that same Gospel of John in, in chapter 3, verse 36. We read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Glorious news. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What? So we must believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and all other forms of obedience, according to Hebrews, is the fruit. It's the fruit of this first and root act of obedience, to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. We mean every daily act of practical obedience is the evidence of this first obedient act of saving faith of believing and trusting in Christ. So walking in practical obedience for the glory of God is the fruit that you have genuine faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Remember, what do we need for salvation? Righteousness. What's offered to us through Christ? His righteousness. And now we're to practice righteousness. It is practicing righteousness that gives us the assurance that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. John, in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, listen, every person that the Father draws to Christ in repentance and faith is now clothed in the Son's righteousness. And though they are imperfect in their obedience, there is now evidence of their salvation from their desire to obey Christ. Beloved, the encouragement is to, to cling to the cross of Jesus, where, where the righteous Son of God died for sinners, that he became the sure source of eternal salvation for all who trust in him. The encouragement this morning is not to go through all these works and try to do good to try to please God. The obedience is to trust in Christ, to cling to Christ. That when you cling to Christ, all the other implications of practical obedience come out. The desire to please your loving Lord, your patient and kind and gentle Savior. But it's not the other way. Too many times we put it the other way, like, I just have to get better. How many times I gotta be a better Christian? I gotta do better. Go back to the first one, cling to Jesus. Look to Christ. Look to Him as a source of eternal salvation. If you're here this morning and you have never repented and trusted in Christ, you're to come to Him now. That he is Lord and he is Savior and you're to follow him. You're not to wait for tomorrow. For tomorrow is promised to no man. You are to come to the Savior now. Beloved, if you are here this morning and you know exactly what I was talking about as I talked about a life of suffering as we live a life of obedience. The encouragement this morning is we have a Savior who understands that we're to run to him at all times that we would receive his grace in a time of need, and that we will receive strength to persevere, to carry on, to not throw in the towel, but to live a life pleasing to our Lord. Let's bow our heads now and take a moment to reflect on what God's word has spoken to us this morning. Father, it is humbling to, to read and to study your word is humbling to be constantly reminded of your grace and your mercy. It is humbling to be reminded over and over again of your son's sacrifice. Father, forgive us for the times we think we can do it, that, that we're able to somehow perform Father, help us instead to be completely dependent upon Christ. Father, we thank you for his sympathy towards us in our suffering. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to cling to Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on him, on his finished work, on the hope of him being the source of our eternal salvation. And Father, we pray for anyone in this place this morning who has not turned to Christ, that you would draw them now for their good and for your glory.
It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.